Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with We Go grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at We Go since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, I catch up with Andrew Steininger, class of 2015, band director at Franklin Park Middle School in Salem, Illinois. One of Andrew's favorite quotes comes from Benjamin Zander musical director of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. My job is to awaken possibility in other people. It is in this spirit that Andrew balances his instruction to instill the discipline for his students to improve while cultivating their love of musical performance. Joining us from the class of 2015 is Andrew Steininger. Andrew, tell us what you do. Well, right now I am a fourth through eighth band director, um, teaching only instruments in uh, Salem, Illinois. So, Andrew, let's let's roll this back a little bit. Um, when did uh, when did you know that music was going to be maybe your vocation? Uh, when 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 did the hook uh, get you? Yeah, so that's a fun story because I I remember back. So the the short answer is high school. Uh, but the long answer is I was I was undecided as to what I wanted to do in college, like basically right up until I made my college decision, because, you know, choosing what school you go to is pretty dependent on what you want to do for a lot of people, um, especially music. You know, that's a pretty specific one where you want to go to a school that's got a good music program. Um, but I was always the music guy in high school. You know, I was the drum major. Um, I was in band my whole time I was there. I was in marching band. I was in the musicals. You know, I was in choir as well for a little bit towards the end of my high school career. So I, I had always been involved in music and I really loved doing music. But for whatever reason, I never envisioned myself as a teacher. And I don't know why it took so long, but I remember in high school, my senior year, we were selling tickets And it was right around the deadline to, you know, for college applications. We were selling tickets for a show we were doing at the time in the lunchroom. And the accompanist for the choir that I was participating in uh, during the, at that time, he walked by and I had, he's an older gentleman, you know, he only came in a couple times a week. And I probably had said maybe five or six words to him, you know, hi, how you doing? Or that type of thing. And he walked up to the, the table and he looked at me. And he didn't acknowledge anybody else. And the first thing he said to me is, you'd be a good band director. And I guess until that point, nobody had like either said that to me directly or like, I I guess I just wrote it off because they were, I don't know, closer to me or something. But for whatever reason that, that like outside, like, why would that person say to me kind of opened my eyes and I'm like, well, I guess I do a lot of music and I really like it. And I kind of like teaching it because I was a drum major. So that sounds like a good idea to me. 
But, you know, talk about butterfly wings, man. That's just, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to kind of go back to your time while you were at WeGo, how did your experience as a performer being in, you know, being, uh, you know, doing the drum major, uh, such a high profile position, obviously being in the musical, how, how, did, how, did, how does that maybe help you as a teacher? Yeah, this is something that I always talk about when I'm, um, when I'm talking about my teaching philosophy in general, but especially when it comes to being a musician, I think one of the main, like, drivers that really keeps me going and got me started in wanting to teach is when you're a drum major or when you're a marcher and you're a freshman marcher in high school, you basically, you like barely know how to play your instrument. You know, you were just an eighth grader. Now you're a freshman in high school and now you have to learn how to walk and play your instrument. And I got to do all of that. And then eventually I was teaching, you know, the kids how to do that. And you can say the same thing about, you know, doing musicals or, or really anything music related where there's just this really neat progression of skill development and also mentorship, which is I'm a huge proponent of, of student mentorship. Um, and those two things really kind of like highlighted a, a part of my mind, at least, um, and really drew me into the leadership and the, just the community of what it means to be a band and then, you know, further from that, a teaching a band. Uh, so did you, were you mostly percussion in high school? Did you play any other uh, instrument? Yeah, well, I was actually a saxophone player and the drum major, uh, it's a weird name because drum major ha- actually has nothing to do with drums. Uh, oh, there's my ignorance about yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> okay. The, so the drum major is actually just the conductor of the marching band. It's this, the, the student or um, like peer level conductor of the marching band. And usually they're kind of like a, uh, a symbolic force. Cause you know, when you're marching out on a field, you're not usually like looking up at a conductor cause you're doing all sorts of crazy stuff, but they're usually like the, the herald of the marching band. They come out, they, they introduce the band, they do a, a little flourish um, and then they conduct and, and lead and teach and all those things. So where did you end up going off to school then? So I went to Elmhurst College, now called Elmhurst University, which is right in the Chicago suburbs. Um, and I was there for five years because I, uh, the way that my, my saxophone professor ran his studio, he treated all of his saxophone players, regardless of their music degree, he treated us all like performers. So I ended up staying for five because I got both uh, a teaching degree and a performing degree, saxophone performance. So um, let's kind of divide that up a little bit here. Um, what's what is the coursework like for the performance degree in saxophone? Like, what's how what's the progression uh, of that field? Sure. So you, as with most things, um, especially in the college world, you can get accepted into the school. But then there's like subsequent auditions or, you know, things that you have to pass once you're with once you got accepted to get further along. So in the performance world, um, at least as I went through it, I had to do something called a jury, which is basically a secondary audition to prove that I'm capable of progressing in the performance field. So my sophomore year before I got to junior year. Um, freshman and sophomore year are kind of like preparatory years before your jury. And then you have to pass this. It's basically a a playing test for your college professors um, where you play a certain number of technical exercises and a certain number of musical um, pieces 
to demonstrate your skill uh, and allow you to to take further uh, performance courses where they they you know push you even further. I'm just curious about the, like the assessment uh, angle of that. Does does the professor do they watch you perform? Or do they just listen to you? Because I'm wondering, because sometimes the eyes might tell you a different story than what you're allowing yourself to hear. What's that assessment um, look like yeah. uh, when we're going through that? So for me, um, at least at Elmhurst, it was uh, conducted by a panel. So it was a live performance. And things you know, may have changed since the world has you know, gotten different with online stuff after COVID. Um, but at least while I was there, it was a live panel. With my professor um, was in there, so it was the professor that worked with me on the music that I was doing for the jury. Uh, I had lessons with him, and then it, the rest of the panel was the other woodwind faculty. So as a saxophone player, I studied with the saxophone professor, and then there's a clarinet professor, a flute professor, and a double reed professor, which would be like oboe and bassoon. Do you do you select what it is that you want to play, or is that negotiated? Uh, uh, or is it kind of a random, like, like you, you don't, you don't know which one of these pieces that you're going to play. What's, what's the, um, deliberation prior to the performance for the assessment? That is the fun part. And that's why if there's any, you know, students out there that are looking to go to college, this is the importance of picking a professor that you like. That is in either entirely determined by your professor or determined by the department that you're going into. So like some departments will have a standardized, okay, you must play X number of scales um, and a certain piece, or your professor might give you a choice as like, as long as it's not something, you know, way below or way above your level. Now I love music, but I'm not trained in music in any significant (laughs) way. When, when you ascend to a level of performance does it become more scientific and mathematical as and less in terms of discipline and talent? I was wondering if you could maybe talk about that the left brain, right brain fusion as you get better and better uh, with thinking about technique. Yes, I, I love this because this is something I think about daily uh, with my students. You know, I teach middle schoolers. So the there's definitely a certain, there's a couple different paths that you can take as a musician. And I'll, I'll just highlight two. So like, like you said, right, right brain and left brain, there are definitely musicians out there that quickly progress because they're more systematic thinkers. So for example, I believe it's Purdue doesn't have a music department, but they've got like, there's a bunch of engineers there. Right. But they have a band. And all these, all these people that are in this engineering program are really good at playing their instruments because they get the, the system of music. You know, it's inter, a bunch mm-hmm. of intervals. You got a bunch of buttons. If you put, push these buttons in this order, you get music, right? And for a lot of people, that works, you know, really well. The problem when you get to uh, a higher level, especially in college, is they start asking for more abstract things like musicality. That word is, has a, a million different meanings. And this is the other path that people go down. So this is the, the other path is people that kind of just get music, you know, people that can do things by ear. You know, you, they hear something and then they sing it right back to you or they play it. And they're doing all these, you know, cool sounds. And but when you put a piece of music in front of them, or when you ask them to explain what they're doing, they don't really have a a, a language 
or a systematic approach that they use. It's more of an intuitive feel. Well, yeah. I find yeah. that approaching students um, and, and when you study music personally, I find that you, I, I know that I needed to, I wanted to have a blend of both of those because I, I definitely leaned a little bit more on the intuitive, um, but I still had some technical knowledge. And when I went to college, I, my technical knowledge kind of caught up to my intuitive and then I fostered both as I went along. But I like to try to incorporate both of those things, in, especially into young musicians, because if you can connect the intuitive to the systematic, that's like a superpower when you're like progressing, because then they know they have skills and tools that they can use to approach things they don't understand. But they also feel like they're connected to the music because they still have that intuitive sense of, oh, I know what that sounds like. I know what that feels like and so on and so forth. Okay, so we were talking about like what you did at Elmer's in the performance part. What's the coursework like on the other side in terms of then kind of getting ready for the actual education end uh, of this? Yeah, this is the part that that all music teachers get frustrated with is especially um, as, you know, a semi as a performer, because not all music educators do a performance degree. Um, And this is kind of an area of contention, depending on who you talk to. Because there are people that will say you need to, you know, you need to really focus on being a teacher and learning the skills of being a teacher, which is true. Um, but sometimes that can come at a sacrifice to your own musicianship, which as a music teacher, mm-hmm. I, I tend to think is a detriment. But so there is a truth to it that when you are doing when you're focusing heavy on your education coursework, you will need to sacrifice per, perhaps some practice time. Um, perhaps some, you won't be playing, uh, with as much, as many ensembles as you did before, just due to the requirements of, of observing and being in classrooms and working on, um, you know, curriculum and things like that. So there's a fine balance to be struck because what, what we don't want to end up as music educators, in my opinion, you don't want to end up being the, the person who can do it in theory, right? Like in it, right. Yeah. it might like, you don't want to teach a student and then have them say, oh, well, can you show me how to do that? And you're like, no, but I kind of know how to do it if you just listen to the words I'm saying. It's a, it's a really interesting point that you're saying about um, that sacrifice that, you know, you, you are honing a discipline, uh, which is your craft. But uh, at the same time, that there will be, you know, there's only so many hours of a day that need to kind of go to that other thing. So, and the other thing is also what has nourished you artistically, and then it's going to this kind of other thing that's, you know, can also be satisfying, but it's just a, a simply a different itch that's getting scratched. That's super interesting. Where did you do your, your student teaching? Yeah, I was a little bit weird because I, my student Student teaching took place in the year that COVID shut everything down. So I got my first, I got three fourths of my first student placement. And then I actually didn't get to do my second placement because they, they kind of like absolved that year of, of requirements due to the lack of being able to go anywhere. But my first placement uh, was with Eric Morong in, at Clarendon Hills middle school Um in it's got the name of the school's got a different name, but it's in Clarendon Hills. Hmm. So, uh, how, what what how long was the was it for a full semester? And what was the what were the classes that you sure. had? Sure. So it was it was 
a half a semester because that's how our uh, music student teaching works. We, by law, we have to do um, half in a middle slash elementary and half in a high school just because we are licensed to teach K through 12. Uh, so the uh, it was a half a semester with the middle school and I did a little bit of elementary while I was there too. Um, but I actually got to get started early because at Elmhurst, we have something called J term where we, we have January off if you choose to, but you can also take a course. So they recommend it to music teachers that are student teaching in the second semester. They recommend that you try to get in with your student teaching placement and just go to like assist, right? Hey, go once or twice a week, depending on how much the teacher wants you there and start getting to know the students and getting to know the program so that when you jump in with your actual coursework while you're there, you know, during the spring semester, you get your, you know, you already hit the ball running. So I was there all of January and then all the way up through, you know, towards the end of March when they shut everything down. You, you finish your student teaching under those circumstances then what's the next move for you after that? Sure. The, the other cool thing about uh, student teaching in the band world is, and I'm, I'm sure you've, you know a little bit about this too as another educator, is you know, we're, we're always kind of on the, on the know about certain jobs in certain places, depending on who you, you know, who you went to school with and who you did, you know, who you've talked to and, or built relationships with. So I started applying for jobs before I was done student teaching, uh, music educators we do that all the time. So I actually went to a job interview while I was doing my student teaching placement um, one of the days. So I started really early in that process, uh, but I didn't actually end up getting a job until it was like July or August of that summer. And that was when I moved down to Southern Illinois. So where, where roughly is Salem uh, in in, uh, in Illinois? Yeah, so we're talking we're talking about two ish hours south of Champaign, and then probably about an hour and a half east of St. Louis. So, how would you describe uh, the community uh, that, that you're now in, and how how might it be different than, uh, let's say, West Chicago? Yeah, this is actually kind of a really fun story. So, I didn't start at Salem. The pre- previous two years, I was at another school, uh, South Central Schools, which is just a little bit further north. But I was playing in this. Uh, there's a community band here that uh, the Salem Community Band, and I played with them, and I conducted their choir. Um, it's a totally volunteer situation, and, and it's a bunch of retirees and anybody in the community that wants to play and sing. And so I got to start knowing the community members really well. And then this job opened up this, you know, just this previous year. And I had already, you know, gotten to know people that were on the school board that had, you know, grandkids that were in the school systems, teachers that had taught, you know, teachers that are teaching at the school I'm at now. Um, so I, I had kind of weaseled my way in, in a way by just doing something that I love, which is finding a place to play and finding a place to perform. Um, and that's really what kind of propelled me to, to accept the position, um, that I'm at right now, just because I really loved the amount of attention the community members were putting on, you know, having a a music program for the kids, for themselves, you know, for the whole community. So 
Now that you're uh, at the school, I was wondering how you, um, what, what's like your music selection like? Like, walk me through how you know, like, what pieces, and then, you know, there's probably things that are probably like the meat and potatoes of like, you have to learn scales by using this, but like, what are the types of, uh, how do you, how do you introduce new music or more, maybe more modern pieces to kind of uh, yeah, keep interest? Yeah, up? this is a question that pops up at every music teacher conference ever is, you know, how do you pick repertoire for your band or your choir or your orchestra or what have you? Um, me personally, I'm a little bit of a, a hybrid thinker on this. So there are teachers out there or band directors that are pretty traditional that think that there needs to be, you know, kind of a, a standard formula for the way that you program a concert. Uh, and traditionally it's like you have, some kind of a march that pays tribute to the tradition of band and how we started because band, the band performing world started with marching bands. It started with military marching bands. That's where bands start like performing bands really became um, in the size that we have them really became as big as they are. And then you were, you program some type of um, lyrical um, slow moving uh, emotional piece that is meant to develop musicality and then you program kind of like a, a fireworks piece, a challenging, fast piece that moves really quick and ends with a bang. And that's kind of the traditional approach to programming a concert. And there are some variants on that with adding pieces uh, and, and other things. Um, and I, I generally stick to that formula, but I, I also want to do things that my students are going to connect with. So if, for example, I just pick up a, a a program and the the students don't really like the music that they're playing. And this is fun because I, I always know that the kids like the music that they're playing. If they like are humming it or singing it or like doing something with it after they've put their instruments away. That to me is always an indication of a win as a teacher. Um, so like I try to find stuff that I, I think sounds cool and I will test it out with the kids. I always love to play things for them because I want things in their ear. Um, so if if they're if they're enthusiastic about it and they're taking that that sound those sounds with them away from the band room, uh, I know that I've kind of got them hooked. That's that's great. I, I was wondering, like, how do you what do you do when it, you're in the presence of a student who just seems to have uncanny talent and uh but then you know talent ultimately does get you know people catch up to that talent what, what are the tricks that you use to kind of keep them uh still hungry and, and to have that kind of discipline to honing their their craft with that uh even if they're blessed with such yeah, talent i i've found that you could go one of two ways with that um sometimes with students that are naturally talented um you can kind of suffocate them by by like uh, making them adhere to the structures that, that help so many other students. And sometimes it's just better just to let them free, right? Okay. Try this, try this, try this, try this, you know, throw stuff at them and see what sticks. And oftentimes those students are self-motivated because they just have a, a love for music because they just, they get it. And it's like, Oh yeah, that's kind of cool. And then other times um, some of those students are a little less disciplined because it has been so easy for them. So sometimes you need to kind of push them a little bit and say, hey, I need you to do this while we're doing this because you have the ability of doing it. 
you know, so I need you to take a little bit more responsibility for the things that we're doing in this song, or I need you to be the leader of this section because you already know how to do all these things. And those, in those two ways, you can kind of capture both of those sides of those types of students. You had mentioned that before that, you know, you have to then kind of, uh, when you were in, in college that you felt that, uh, that there's always that kind of sense that maybe I might be dulling my performance part of yourself as a musician and an artist in such a way as you're kind of pursuing what you need to do for uh, your education degree. I was wondering how have you been able to kind of then pull back and now go back into your instrument? Are you still playing the saxophone or do you have, have you branched out into other instruments? What do you do to stay sharp as a musician? Yeah, this yourself? is kind of a two pronged answer. But uh, the first thing is I knew that when I moved down to Southern Illinois, uh, I did so much playing in college and I enjoyed it so much. I knew that I had to find an outlet for myself. So currently I'm playing saxophone in a couple different groups. I'm playing with a local community college in their jazz band and their wind ensemble. And I'm also playing with that community group that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so, it, it, you know, obviously it's all volunteer. I don't get paid to to play or anything. Um, but for me, it's having that musical outlet is so important to keep myself musically grounded because it's really easy for music teachers, in my opinion, being surrounded by musicians that don't have your level of knowledge to kind of forget what it's like to be a beginner. So I always want to be finding ways for myself to to remind what those feelings are like when I don't quite get something right away or I have to go back and I have to practice something just like my students do. But also, and I I believe in this very, very strongly, so I play all the instruments with all my students in their lessons. So I play saxophone with the saxophones, trombones with the trombones, you know, so on and so forth. And that was a product of my my education. You know, I learned how to play those in school, but I also had to practice those as I got into teaching. So I, I constantly am trying to look for ways to make me feel like a beginner again so that I can develop the skills and and the perspective to deliver instructions to students uh, where they're at, rather than having just a standard lesson plan that I apply to everyone uh, that may or may not work for any given student. Uh, just kind of curious with that, is there is so you you've gravitated towards uh, the saxophone that's kind of been uh, your instrument of choice throughout all these years. Is there an instrument that still you wrestle with that's like, I just, it just, it requires just that much more effort uh, than others that the, the intuition is just not as, uh, as quick to, to get to you as, as you, uh, as you battle it. Yeah. So I, I don't dabble too much in double reeds. So oboe and bassoon, that's probably my, my weak point in the, in the band world. And I am actually quite, uh, I'm not quite too good on strings. So strings are my kryptonite. I don't really know how to play guitar. Um, I don't really do any of the violin family. Um, and I'm, you know, kind of a, a novice piano player myself. So any of those, you know, I, I will play piano for certain things, but it's always, uh, it's always kind of like a hack and slash attempt on those. So when students are, are, kind of finding their niche, you know, and, and uh, with, 
but with music, like, it, do you do you kind of have a survey of various different types of music to say, hey, by the way, like you should be listening to this a little bit more. I was wondering how you kind of spread the, your your background of of suggestions uh, to students uh, in such a way. How does that, how do you work? How do you sure. work with that? In middle school, um, in my my approach to middle school musicians, I want them to. My number one goal with a middle school musician is to up the uh, level of musical curiosity as high as I can. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really interested in pushing them in one direction or another. I want them to get a taste of as much as they're interested in. So if someone like, for example, I've got a trombone player who uh, was learning to play upright bass with his grandpa, I believe, and he's playing in a bluegrass group. And so, Hey, I said, we don't have a tuba in the band right now. Do you want to play that bass on some of our pieces? And we'll, you know, I'll work with you and we'll maybe rewrite some music. You can play the tuba parts on the bass. And he said, oh yeah, I'd love to do that. And he played that bass on our Christmas concert. And now he comes to me and he tells me, Hey, I'm playing with this, this bluegrass group with my grandpa. You know, do you want to come and, and see me play, you know, in this bluegrass group? And to me, the more musical experience a student has, even if it's not on the instrument that I they play for me, is better. And I, and I know this from experience, that all the musical knowledge that I have, regardless of the musical situation I'm in, whether I'm playing trumpet or trombone or if I'm playing my saxophone, um, you take that musical knowledge to different instruments. And so if I've got students that are experiencing what it's like, you know, to play an upright bass, you know, keeping the time and playing the low notes, and he understands what it feels like to play a bass line, that's only going to help him play his trombone better. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. No, you had mentioned before that you would attend various music teacher conferences and all that. I was wondering, you know, I know you've just been teaching for now a, a few years here, but with the various different innovations that probably had to happen as a result of COVID, online teaching and all that, have you seen any uh, helpful technologies emerge that kind of have assisted instruction? Oh, yes. So I, I just started using a program this year that has been kind of the talk of the music education world for probably the last five or six years. And it's definitely, uh, it, you know, got boosted up when COVID kind of knocked everybody down. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, something called smart music. Uh, they rebranded recently. They're called make music now, I believe. Um, but it's a program that it's basically like a band director on a computer. So I can, it's a subscription based service that, I buy using um, district funds for all the students and uh, I give them their own little subscription. And what it is, is I can, if they have a, a library of music, so band pieces, solo pieces, pop pieces, all different types of stuff. And the students have access, access to this library that they can search up by themselves at any time. But then I assign them the music pieces that we're doing for class and it will show them their part on their computer. And the coolest part is that it has professional recordings on it that they can listen to and practice with. Um, you can speed it up. You can slow it down. You can listen to different instruments. Um, you can There's a metronome on there that you can turn on and off. You can listen to your part specifically and nothing else. And then the best part for me 
is I there's a record button so I can assign specific parts of specific music to specific students and I can ask them to record themselves and I can hear them individually which traditionally in the band world you had have had to take in depending on the size of your band a whole week or more to hear each student individually um, in order to give them any type of specific feedback on their playing and then that's even biased due to you know students um, having certain performance anxieties um, playing by themselves and so on and so forth. So what I have started doing this year, almost like a little bit of a flipped classroom scenario where I will assign certain things to students um, that we don't necessarily do in class all the time. Uh, but we, you know, I'll cover it briefly and I'll, I'll go over what is expected for them to do on their recording. But then I give them, that on as an assignment and they either do it at home or they, I give them some time during the week um, to record it at school. And that way I can hear them individually. And I know what level students are at uh, because I've heard their recordings and I can give specific feedback on the program. And then I know, all right, this student is struggling with this um, or this student doesn't quite understand how to use this program yet. Maybe I need to go back and explain it again uh, and, and it's just been really wonderful to to help differentiate, you know, the educational buzzword that we throw around all the time, help differentiate uh, yeah. for, in the band room, because that has been a challenge for band directors since, you know, time immemorial. No, that's 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 really that's really interesting. I, you mentioned something uh, just now about, you know, performance anxiety and stuff like that. How what, what how do you assist someone who is like maybe trying that is is in their head too much about maybe making that solo or what are like what are the ways in which you kind of uh help them not think about that very moment where all of a sudden all eyes are on them because i I imagine that's that's got to be something that rattles a lot of cages for the performer i mean they want to do it because they love music but again that the the performance anxiety is a real thing um what are ways in which you're able to kind of uh, create calm that's uh the large, it's a large part due to the way that you are trained or, you know, what, what your teacher has done with you. Um, there's a couple different thoughts on this. Uh, for me, a lot, a large part of it is starting students with confidence from a young age. So the way I teach my young students is, you know, don't be afraid to make a loud sound. If you make a loud sound, that's better than no sound, Right. And if I can keep that confidence in a student all the way to when they get to the time when it's time to start playing independently, um, that is, it does wonders for their confidence. The other couple ways, if you do have a student that is like kind of performance anxiety ridden and they're older, um, something that we do in college or or college professors have, have said forever is the more you do it, the easier it gets. So it's just flat out repetition. If you, you know, wash, rinse and repeat over and over again, you kind of work out the fact that it's just muscle memory and the performance anxiety part of it shouldn't impact the muscle memory of it. Then further from that, if you want to take more of a um, kind of a a metaphysical or like metaphorical approach to a student, you could do things like uh, talking to them about focusing on the feeling of a piece of music, right? Don't think about what the audience is doing. Think about the way you want the piece to feel, right? Do you want this piece to feel nervous or do you want this piece to feel like 
grand or sad or whatever. And that way it takes their brain off of the nervousness and onto the actual intent of the music. Is there a particular composer or artist that you're like, I, I could teach this person all the time. Like, like where it's like, it's like, you know, it, it's just like, it just comes easier to you for your students when you're selecting from this uh, particular mm. body of work. Yeah. That's, that's hard for me because I'm, I'm generally a music fan. So I, anything that sounds cool to me and then obviously makes sense for my ensemble, I will kind of gear myself towards, but a couple names that, that come to mind, um, some living composers right now, uh, one of them that's pretty pretty hot and doing real well, and, and a lot of people use his stuff is Randall Standridge. Um, he's done some cool things with like Christmas tunes. Like uh, He's got one that basically everybody's band played this Christmas it's called Santa the Barbarian. He took he took Santa and he put him in like a like a Viking, you know, context. And it's really dark and and like really heavy. And it was, you know, kind of neat for students to be able to experience it like that. Um, and then some some that have been around for a long time. Uh, Robert W. Smith, who is definitely still living, um, he's been putting out really good middle school and even some high school level uh, literature um, that band directors have been using for a long, long time. And I find that the, so there's, there's this interesting thing that has happened in the music education world um, where back, I don't know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, as bands were transitioning from, you know, the high level performance group and they're starting to make their way into schools, right. And, and the, the field of music education is becoming more developed and we're becoming making more strategies on how to teach younger students. The composers started changing the way that they were writing pieces. So originally composers for young bands used to write kind of watered down versions of what they would write for professionals which was good, but for schools that were not as capable or funded to provide students access to be able to learn that music, it was difficult, um, especially for, for schools that didn't have the right instrumentation because they would write a full professional you know, setup for a school, including like um, double reeds and, and multiple French horns and, and a full spread. But as time has gone on, we see things um, like there's a series out there now called Flex Band, where composers have taken classic pieces of literature that would usually have a full instrumentation, and they've boiled them down into five parts that any of uh, any group of instrument could play any one of those parts. So you can pick and choose what part uh, you want certain instruments to play, and you can still end up with a similar sounding piece. Do you think like students having access to YouTube and maybe TikTok or that where people maybe post how they're able to work through their musical questions or challenges. Do you think that's something that is going to ultimately be beneficial to teaching or is it going to be something that, no, oh, now that they're on it, now they're going to get distracted and not actually do what they're there for? What's your, uh, what's your sense that how learning via social media could be uh, beneficial for music or, or maybe not I so have much? always felt, uh, and I, I definitely took a dip into technology more in college than I did ever before. Um, so I have always felt that technology is nothing more than another tool in our tool belt. And it really depends on the skillfulness of the pe- person using the tool that to, to make a difference. So 
obviously in the hands of middle schoolers, technology is, is kind of just like a, you know, an attention grab, you know, it's like a flashy billboard, right? Oh, look at this. I'm going to click on this because they're, you know, they're middle schoolers. And that's, that's what at that age, that's kind of what they're doing. But if you have an educator that is facilitating the use of technology in the classroom and for their students in a way that we are trained to know how to do, right? We're trained to, to create educational opportunities and environments. Um, that is, I find that technology to be one of the best things that it has come to the classroom, you know, ever. Because there's no time before has it been easier to get access to information quicker, more efficiently, and um, effectively. Why do you think music makes mm. us human? And why is that so important in education that we, that we should have exposure uh, to it to the extent that we do? Yeah, what a great question. Um, I'll answer this two ways. Um, and don't let me forget that I'm going to do two ways because I might, I might win. Okay. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try to, I'll try so to capture The it. first way is that this is, a, you know, kind of theoretical. Um, and obviously I'm not a, a researcher or a scientist, so this is not, you know, proven in any way, shape or form. But like music at its base form is a vibration. And people kind of you get a sense of a certain, I don't know, energy about someone, you know, someone you dis you disagree with or you don't get along with, you you kind of like get this negative energy off of them, right? You don't feel good around them. You don't really can't think of good things to say when you're with them. Um, it's generally just a negative feeling. And the same thing, the opposite is true when you're with somebody that you really like. You know, you just get this this buzz, right? You feel good. You know exactly what to say. You feel free in your, your ability to communicate. I think music kind of, it, it takes that very human thing and it models it in a, in a weird way where we blow into stuff and we hit stuff and, and we communicate with each other. And it models that very innate form of human communication that we really don't understand and that's why you get such a wide variety of musical interests and musical expression, right? There's so many different genres from, you know, Western classical music, which has been around, you know, since Bach and Beethoven. And then you get alternative rock and you get hip hop and R&B and rap and you get world music from other cultures that, that you know, does things with sounds. Like, for example, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, um, the Indian tradition of music. And I, I'm not in, a, you know, in any way an expert on it, but they, their concept of rhythm is so much different than any Western music that we do here. Uh, but mm. it's almost like it's, it's almost like its own words. So the re the rhythms themselves are what are like the foundation of the, the communicative power of that music. So that's part one. Part two is, the community that surrounds the music. So there's something uniquely human and uniquely powerful uh, about being able to do a task at the same time in the same place and have it be beautiful. So when someone, whether, and, and beauty can be defined very broadly here, right? You could be talking about a heavy metal group in your parents' garage um, and some people say that that's not beautiful at all. Uh, I, I have different opinions, but so being able to be together with a group of people and that could be, you could even, I mean, you could even be by yourself too, but 
when you're producing something that's kind of on like a sympathetic or a, a, a level where you're connected, where you're doing something at the same time, reaching the same goal, uh, th- there's something uniquely human and uniquely satisfying about that to us that just just kind of binds you together. And what's crazy about the music world, especially professional musicians, and the reason we, we covet these, these high-level performing groups is these people have found a way to go get together with another group of musicians. Sometimes they have never seen before, and they're able to create this experience and then leave and maybe never see that other musician again. And I, I think in a, in a lot of ways, people really are desperately searching for that level of connection to something on a daily basis, whether it's a, a relationship with someone, whether it's a hobby or a, a skill that you do really well. And I think music is kind of the perfect metaphor or the perfect facsimile of that for, for many people. I, I know very few people that listen to no music Andrew, this has been so much fun. Um, I, I always like ending the interview with uh, a question about what tips for success do you have for current yeah, Wildcats? Um, this is something that has served me well all throughout my education and into my professional career. And that is always, always start with curiosity and always grab any opportunity you can. So if you have a thought in your head, like, Hmm. I wonder what would happen if I did this, or maybe I could try this and we'll see what happens. Always pursue that thought because even if, uh, even if you don't end up following that to its conclusion, you are more informed, you're more knowledgeable, and you're more of a human for attempting it and seeing what you do with that than you are if you didn't do that. Um, and then I can't tell you the number of opportunities that I've gotten just f- that I didn't even know I could get just from saying yes to things. So if if you can spare an extra hour a week, you know, not doing something that involves a screen or not doing something that involves you, you know, kind of just sitting around, do it. You know, even if even if you do it for a little while and you stop doing it at least you have tried it and you have an experience with it because you never know when that little experience is going to pop back up again in your life, whether it's a conversation in an interview, whether it's a new friend that you would just build a connection with because they tried the same thing. Um, To me, it's all about creating this breadth of experience in your life and then just seeing where it takes you. What, what's going to connect to the next thing? What's going to be an, an, something else that brings you to another experience. Well, Andrew, this has been great. Thank you so much. Your students are lucky to have you. And uh, I learned a lot. And um, this was really, this was so, so much fun. So thank you so much and uh, good luck. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and spread the word about We Go Places by sharing our interviews with other Wildcats. If you want to search past episodes or stay current, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere where you can get your podcasts. Just search We Go Places.
You can follow We Go Places on our Facebook page as well, and also Twitter at We Go Places Podcast. And if you know a former Wildcat who would be a great guest, send me a direct message on Facebook, Twitter, or by school email at bturnbow at bturnbow at d94.org. Yeah.